Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have Daniel Rogers. Over 25 years' experience in the lighting industry as a lighting designer, manufacturer, sales rep, teacher, consultant. He's done it all. He currently serves as ICF lead lighting consultant for Energy Star Specification Development, providing technical expertise to the US EPA on lamp and luminaire product design, efficiency metrics, and test procedures. Since joining ICF in 2007, Dan has also contributed to ICF projects for USAID, Natural Resources Canada, Con Edison, PICO, I don't know what that one is, NYSERDA, that's a tough one, Energy Trust of Oregon, the Design Lights Consortium, and multiple other North American utilities. Dan is lighting certified by the National Council on Qualifications for the Lighting Professions, the NCQLP is the incoming chair of the NCQLP Examination Committee and is a United States Green Building Council lead accredited professional. He is an active member of the IES, serving on multiple society committees, and is the author of the IES seminar, Lighting Calculation Terms and Methods, as well as IES Technical Memorandum Number 1, the five lighting metrics. Finally, Dan is an instructor at New York School of Interior Design and an adjunct professor in Keene University's Michael Graves College, Robert Bush School of Design. Whoa, that was a t- that was a hot one, Greg Eric. <laughs> but bef- before we got, before we get to Daniel Rogers, uh, we got to talk a little bit about the gangsters down in New York and other places over the U.S. Satco, go to satco.com, Greg. They do the light thing. They do the right thing. That's right. And you talk about their starfish product. That's what Ooh. we're talking about today. And here's, I'm at home right now doing the podcast. And where can you use that? At your home, 100% for sure. They've got uh, the color changing tape light you can put. My kids have it all over in their rooms. They leave it on all the time with the Starfish app. You can turn it on. You can turn it off right from your phone. And you can do that with can lights. You can do that with everything. So you can cover your whole home and starlight or Starfish lights from Satco. So check them out. Check out Starfish, baby. That's right. And of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Satco is a long time member. Of, of Nailed and a proud member as well. And so we thank them for their support in this show. Daniel Rogers, welcome to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Looking forward to uh, chatting about whatever. Yeah, go. well, that, that whatever, I think it could go anywhere because you have such a long list of titles or duties or activities or what, what, what is your, I, what's your day job? What do you do for, on a day-to-day basis? Does anybody <laughs> pay you though? Like who pays you? <laughs> right. So I, who pays me? So I, um, I work for a large multi, uh, uh, professional consulting firm called ICF. Um, we have, um, uh, supported energy star and EPA, uh, since the beginning of the energy star program. Um, I've been supporting that work, and that's uh, pretty much my full-time role at this point is supporting EPA and the Energy Star uh, program. So lamps, luminaires, um, I'm involved a little bit at the building level on certification as well. Um, as a consulting firm, we also do work with uh, with utilities who are um, who are implementing incentive programs, um, and also those who are trying to understand what their um, what the lighting market looks like in their service territory. And so um, we've done some market studies uh, and lighting assessment studies for, uh, for utilities as well to help them understand what types of lighting um, is in the market, 
what's coming into the market, um, if they are, um, if they're trying to figure out what the most uh, important incentives or what the products that they want to incentivize the most, we try to help them understand uh, what or how they can best invest their incentive dollars and cents to help move the market. And so, so for Energy Star, what specifically do you do? Is it consulting or helping put together the program combination? Where are you at? So, um, I, um, also a great question. Um, I've been supporting uh, Taylor Jantzell and Peter Panwell at EPA on the lighting program for Energy Star uh, for the better part of six years. Uh, when I stepped into that role, uh, the Luminaires version 2.0 specification had just been finalized and released. Um, and so I've um, helped EPA bring that through to where we are now with the version 2.2 specification, some slight, uh, slight adjustments and modifications. And then on the LAMPS side, um, I was involved in bringing the LAMPS version 2.0 specification to finalization uh, and uh, right about the beginning of 2016. Um, and have seen that uh, program uh, now we're at a 2.1 specification. So we've made some adjustments to that as well. Um, and uh, at this point, uh, helping them understand where the market is going, uh, what types of products are on the market today, what challenges are faced by uh, companies who are, um, who are uh, wanting to participate in the Energy Star program. Um, trying to make those decisions. Um, so that's a lot of kind of what I'm doing these days on energy. And, and so, I, you know, I'm not in a consulting company, but you are obviously. And, and when they, when these companies like Energy Star EPA are looking at it, are they looking to hire you or are they looking at the company ICF? Because to me, it's your experience and your knowledge, but you work for ICF. So how does that work? So I so um, the ICF contract with EPA is a large. Um, so we help implement the entire program. So it's not just they haven't just hired me because I know lighting. They've hired ICF because we have subject matter experts on. Um, uh, um, let's see, electric vehicle charging equipment and HVAC equipment and room air cleaners and data center energy efficiency. So all of the products. So um, ICF's contract with EPA is is more than just me because I know about light bulbs and luminaires and mm -hmm. color rendering index and CCT and all of those great things, right? Um, all the things that are really important about lighting. But it's um, as a consulting firm, we are um, charged with um, helping to support the entire program. So um, there are staff that review our off-the-shelf verification testing results um, through the enforcement uh, side of the program. There's an implementation side where um, ICF staff are um, receiving applications for companies who want to become a brand owner partner or a test lab to be EPA recognized to test or certify products as well. So it's not just because um, I know what I know about lighting. Mm -hmm. And as far as the Energy Star program and, and lighting specifics, since that's what you're in and what we are, uh, are there any characteristics or, or qualifications, I should say, that are, are going to change for Energy Star? Are they looking at measuring it any different than they have in the past or where are we at with the future of it? Um, really good question. Um, right now in terms of energy efficiency, 
Um, uh, we, like a lot of the industry, are um, are waiting to see what the Department of Energy does in terms of rulemaking uh, with general service lighting um, as it relates to lamps. Um, so um, until that process um, reaches uh, its um, its conclusion, um, we're um, EPA feels that the specifications are in a really good place where they are right now in terms of the technology that's on the market. Um, we have done a couple of things with the version 2.0 specification, um, just as the LAMPS 2.0 spec was, um, was coming to completion. Um, there was um, the IES Color Committee had just uh, um, released TM30, which introduced the fidelity metric and the gamut metric as potential um, color rendition metrics uh, to use in comparison to and alongside color rendering index and R9. So, in, uh, you know, CRI is a tried and true um, metric that we've had since the early 60s um, to, uh, to um, as one standard for um, for describing the ability of an electric light source to render colors naturally, I guess, or as you would expect them to be. Um, when compared to a standard source. Uh, TM30 um, introduced uh, new metrics. Uh, one uh, was a um, is a fidelity metric that's very similar to CRI, although based on a larger set of color standards or samples to compare. Um, and the gamut index uh, is one that um, looks at whether a light source tends to oversaturate or desaturate light sources, uh, um, colors in the space. And so um, EPA relatively quickly, um, we wanted to incorporate into the specification a way to catalog how existing certified products are performing with those metrics. Um, so our requirements are still based on CRI and R9, but we also are starting to build a catalog and we have a catalog of RF and RG uh, performance data um, as an internal library for the next time a specification comes up for renewal. We will have um, at our fingertips um, some information to help us to help inform the decision about whether the time is right to switch from maybe CRI and R9 to RF and RG. Um, the other area that was uh, there, that there was a lot of transition in with the specifications was around light source flicker or temporal light modulation. Uh, and, and so um, there are a lot of different test methods to try to uh, quantify uh, um, whether or not the human eye can perceive flicker, what's actually happening in the, um, in the uh, the spectral output of the light over time, is it flickering? I happen to be more sensitive to light source flicker than heck everybody else in my family. So we'll walk into a restaurant and I'll be like, okay, the overhead lights are driving me crazy because they're all flickering and they're like, we don't see it. So there is, um, I happen to be overly sensitive to it, but a lot of other people aren't. Um, so there's a lot of value in understanding and um, to the point, Mike, I think you made in one of your recent podcasts is that 
lighting, um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about the LC exam, but um, some of what the LC exam is about is the history of lighting. And um, and so um, in terms of flicker, understanding, and, and so as we learn more about the human eye and the human visual system, it's really important to have standards and ways to describe what's happening and how our how our electric light sources in our environment are um, are exposing us to light. Is you it know, healthy? Is it challenging? You know, it's uh, Greg. I'm just going to jump in here because mm -hmm. I'm pretty passionate about the flicker issue and a lot of the the complaints um, from outdoor lighting. I do the Starving for Darkness podcast as well. A lot of the complaints that people ascribe to high Kelvin temperature outdoor lighting are actually flicker issues that they're experiencing. Mm -hmm. So it sounds more like Arnold Wilkins's Dr. Arnold Wilkins's flicker concerns. These are the symptoms of someone that's suffering from flicker. So I think we need to understand temporal light modulation a lot better um, with that regard. Um, so we know we can hurt people with light. Um, now we're trying to help people with light, Daniel. Uh, do you think that's possible? Um, I think it's possible to provide um, a lighted environment that doesn't hurt us. Um, it, oftentimes when um, I listen to uh, presentations about light and health, you know, we spend, uh, you know, depending upon who you talk to, you know, 80 to 85% of our time indoors. Um, and so I am one that, you know, if I can go out for a walk in the morning, um, I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, hitch, hitch my dog to his leash and I'm going to take him for a walk because the benefits of, of sunlight and skylight and the reflected light in our environment, those intensities are so beneficial. Um, we are, as we learn more about electric light, I think there will come a, um, there will be, we will, there will be a day in the future where we will, um, we will understand enough um, to be uh, to be very informed about the environment that people are spending that 80 to 85 percent of the time. You know, in the evening, turn the lights down, uh, potentially shift to the warmer uh, CCTs um, as you're also reducing it. You know, to help um, to help sync your the lighting that you need for the visual tasks you're doing in the evening are very different from the morning or obviously midday. Um, so uh, we know enough, I think, now to recognize that there are lighting um, there are lighting applications that can be detrimental to our circadian rhythms, um, and we're getting we're moving towards um, a full understanding or a fuller understanding of of how electric lighting should. Uh, be controlled through the course of the day um, to to help our circadian rhythms maintain all of the things that it does in our body. That was the the, um, the carefulest answer I've heard. <laughs> <laughs> Greg, I know, do you have a couple more points, or do you want me to keep rolling here, bud? No, I, I one of the things I wanted to ask was this temporal modulation flicker. Can it ever just be as simple? And I want it to be as simple as a percentage. Like this, this I want a ninety-five percent flicker-free light bulb or whatever it is. You know, why can't we ever just get to that measurement level where the average person can understand it? That 
you know, less flicker is good. And this light bulb or this source provides this much flicker. I it's think called, it should be it's called incandescent. <laughs> yeah, right. But everything's LED. And I, I think it should be required on the package, like to list a percentage or something that, that tells you what it is. To me, that, that can help define quality. Um, yeah, and I didn't really necessarily feel like it was, I, I wasn't trying to be overly careful, but I don't, um, I feel like in, in, in terms of the question about flicker percent, I think flicker and all of the different modulations that can translate into flicker, whether it's, oh, my flicker wheels up there, uh, whether it's a stroboscopic effect, right? or um, it's where you can perceive it in your field of view and it's not something that's moving. So there's there's at least three different types of flicker. Like when you drive down the street and you mm -hmm. see um, you know, certain car taillights are driving you nuts because there's something about its movement and your movement relative to each other. So um, for the scariest uh, for one is the, uh, the scariest one is the crosswalks flickering and the headlights flickering blinding the person that's crossing at the crosswalk that was the scariest one i've heard so far yeah the actual flickering yeah, of it, the headlights and the um the flickering of the of the overhead lights can actually interfere with your ability to see someone walking yep How you like it's that up? it's it, it well as we learn more about it we discover that it's as much about where our eye is is our eye looking straight ahead is it moving across a field of view are our eyes moving are we moving are the light sources moving so to come up with a percent maybe on a light bulb uh, uh packaging or a light fixture that a consumer is going to choose for their kitchen maybe there is at some point in the future where we will be able to get to the point where a single number will work for most consumers i don't think that we i don't think we'll necessarily ever get there for the automotive industry because there's so much motion involved in that and there's there's a lot of so um i'm not uh, certainly a fortune teller i'm not sure i could be wrong about that right but i it's a, it's it's as complex as color rendition if not more so i want to hit you with another problem the the changing of metrics is very difficult to do. I mean, you guys still use inches. I mean, you know, in the states, uh, it, like there's such an obvious case for the metric system, and still, you know, we persist with you know miles and even two types. And we got nautical miles. You got statue miles. I mean, yeah, you, you know, um, there's all different these metric changes. This the, seems that the old metrics are very sticky, and and. We seem to go through these iterations of trying to change a metric, it fails, and then you try to change it again, and it fails, and it try to change it again, and it fails. Are we going to get to a point where we actually have something than, other than CRI that's really meaningful to most people in the lighting industry? I hope so, because I think that I, I hope so. Yeah. Um, and mm -hmm. and I think that, and I'm not, I was not part of the committee that put together TM30. Mm -hmm. and RF and RG. But um, as I have educated myself about um, the shortcomings of CRI and the what the color committee um, did to try to overcome those perceived shortcomings, um, it, I am hopeful that through education and through time that the industry, it may not replace it, but the sooner that we get the industry to go, okay, CRI is a number on the packaging. 
I also want to see RF. I want to see the fidelity metric because I know the value of that score also. Um, so I don't necessarily think in the short term, I don't, I think it's maybe uh, overly optimistic to think that CRI is going to go away uh, maybe in our career before we retire. But at some point, I am hopeful that um, that the industry continues to overcome the um, the the stationary inertia, if you will, of an old tried and true metric that everybody knows. We love seeing a CRI number on the packaging. Um, another, but, another, yeah, another, yeah, another error, um, another error, another metric that's caused some trouble, I think, in lighting is lumens per watt. Have we overcome our, our fetish or obsession with lumens per watt at the government level, at the DOE level yet? Or is there, are they still very much focused on that? And is that driving um, their policy? As uh, I can't speak for the DOE, but um, I anticipate that the next, the outcome of the next rulemaking will probably be a lumens per watt based um, standard for energy efficiency, for whether it's uh, 45 lumens per watt is the minimum uh, the minimum luminous efficacy that a source can, you know, that a general service lamp can have to be available for sale. I anticipate that's probably what we will see. Um, where I see those, um, so that the Department of Energy, when they talk about those types of standards, they're setting a minimum um, efficiency level for a product to be available for sale. Where I see there are maybe um, um, quicker, and I don't know if this is quicker, but the um, the organizations that write codes, energy codes, whether it be ASHRAE, IES, you know, standard 90.1, or um, you know, the International Building Codes, um, I see they are still a watts per square foot basis, and I think that there's a there is an argument for um, lumens per watt tells us how efficiently a light source produces light, the same way as miles per gallon tells us how efficiently our vehicle is going to get us from point A to point B. Um, where I think there may be more opportunity or a greater opportunity to uh, to move the needle in terms of overall energy consumption is in our energy codes. Maybe we go from a watts per square foot to a kilowatt hours per square foot that allows that recognizes that through controls, there may be times of the day where we need to consume more energy to potentially do our circadian rhythm lighting, our, you know, human centric lighting, our, you know, the morning lighting, you know, increase the blue wavelengths, you know, right, the short wavelengths in the morning, that naturally is, needs to consume more energy. And if we can then t uh, pull that back in the evening or in the afternoon and, and recognize that through controls, there are times of the day where we may need to use more watts per square foot, if you will, but then we can dial it back to uh, to a much lower uh, to a much lower energy consumption at other times of the day. Kilowatt hours per square foot, or something like that, seems like another way to come at the um, at the equation to reach the same goal. Yeah, it's tough because you know the demand versus consum consumption argument with electricity. Um, production uh you know demand is really all that matters 
when you're you have to produce on demand like a lot of people don't realize it's very I used to say you can't store electricity, but I'm going to say it's very difficult to, sc- to store grid, grid level of electricity, which is the problem with renewables. Um, you know, you need to produce it on demand. So is demand more important, the watts per square foot versus the consumption per, per square foot? That's, a, that's an argument that, that, that has pros and cons on both sides. Um, but I want to ask you a little bit about complexity, and I think this is going to be a good segue into the LC, Greg. Okay. Mm-hmm. The... The lighting industry seems to be increasing complexity at an exponential rate. Okay, into the, into the products, you know, you, you're going from, you know, LEDs now to dim to warm to zero to ten volt dimming to Bluetooth connectivity to do. There's so many things going on in the lighting industry now. I mean, even the host of the pod, you got to grip on lighting podcast, throws his hands in the air and say, well, "What's new today?" <laughs> That's you know, why we're doing this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly this reason. At right what here. point does complexity become a tyranny in this industry where it's just too complex? And I think that's a good segue maybe into the LC. I think from my point of view, as complexity goes, so goes education. Like with, com- with added complexity, you necessarily need education to teach people the value of the added complexity or what the value is um, and then how to apply that complexity in a way to realize the benefits that that the manufacturer or the designer uh, what their vision is for why you would want to have that extra complexity so i think education is going to be a key role and to that point um, finding ways to deliver that education broadly in a way that people can access it when they when they have spare time whatever you know whenever they have spare time you know it can't just be um a one-day conference you know the um so i think i think that's the other side to the complexity is that as we learn more about our visual system and light and health and circadian rhythms and color and all of these things we're still learning about heck our own bodies and how we respond to light. Um, there are opportunities for added complexity, but in order for it all to work together to the end goal that everybody wants, I think it's critical to have education. So in on that topic and something we want to hear about is, is ELC. We've mentioned on a previous podcast that that's a gold standard for lighting education, getting your LC. You're actively involved. What do you do for the program right now? So I have been a member of the exam committee for five years. 2016 was when I joined the exam committee. So I um, joined the committee and um, the committee is um, the group that um, oversees the assembling of each year's exam, um, reviewing all of the items on the exam to make sure that they are um, referenced to one of the reference list. pieces um, and also that they are appropriate for uh, for what we expect um, what we expect an LC to know um, and so uh, with this past uh, uh, last month actually I assumed the role as the exam committee chair um, so a couple of the um, a couple of added uh, responsibilities I guess are um, to you know, to keep that committee moving forward, to grow that committee, um, to make sure that that committee represents, uh, it has a ballast, 
balanced representation of the members on the committee represent who's in our industry, whether it be lighting designers, engineers, manufacturers, OEMs, uh, also distributors. Um, and so um, those are a, a couple of my new responsibilities. And uh, the third is really to continue engaging with the NCQLP board and council um, to make sure that, um, or to offer any assistance that the exam committee can offer to, uh, to them to support their efforts around um, emphasizing the importance of the LC, um, the, uh, the reason why a young lighting practitioner uh, would want to pursue their LC. Um, so that's a little bit about my role um, currently. So you did it in 2016 when you basically had to change everything. Is that what you're telling us? No, no, no. Uh, well, I, it's not like I joined the committee and then everything had to change, right? There, there has been for, um, um, from the very beginning, NCQLP put together um, um, a, a, a process and a program and the committee is structured in a way that um, we're able to evaluate. Um, periodically, we do what's called a um, a jobs review. And then we actually have one coming up probably next year where we are going to survey um, everybody that we have contacts for and and the, the uh, supporting member organizations have. We are gonna survey the industry and find out what parts of um, a lighting project are most, um, each person, does the most, whether it's design, whether it's installation, whether it's post-construction uh, commissioning. And so that as, um, as time moves forward, we wanna make sure that the LC exam is moving in the same rhythm as the lighting industry. So just as we've had LEDs have taken over the world of lighting in terms of new construction, we still have all of the traditional uh, technologies out there that are still installed. Right. So um, at the same time, we want to make sure that as the industry as a whole is is moving forward, whether it's more complexity, whether it's um, uh, uh, definitional changes in kind of what a lighting designer or an interior designer and architect does doesn't change very much. But as it relates to lighting, um, every five years, we uh, we do that to make sure that the exam content is tracking what. Um, what people in the industry are being tasked with. Yeah, that, my reference to 2016 is basically that's when LED became everything, right? I mean, it's still not everything, but that, that's kind of one of the key things. And Michael and yep. I talked about is that you still need the traditional knowledge. You need that lighting background, and that's what the LC does. But you've had to have major changes from when you started to what, before you started, I would assume, to the test. Um, even before, I mean, we would get regularly, we would get people ask us, why aren't there more questions about LED? Um, and we have worked very, very hard to, um, to um, over time, bring in more um, questions about LEDs. Um, as with any certification exam, you have to have references for the information that you're asking candidates to know. And so to a certain extent, over the past three or four years, we really now have some new um, references, whether it's, you know, within the IES lighting library or um, other um, industry publications that 
we as the committee can reference the information and and quote it or or build that information into questions. So we as the committee, we can't just write a question and put it in the multiple choice uh, and ask whatever we want. We have to have a reference to point to, to say, and here's why it's right. It's not just right because the chair of the committee said so, or the committee voted on it and all but one said yes. There you know has to be a reference for it. Yeah, you know what? You know what's you know kind of we, it just was occurring to me while you're talking about it. So, you know, fluorescent lamps came out after the Second World War. A couple decades later, another technology comes out. We hit the '90s. They have CFLs and then screw in CFLs and all this sort of stuff sort of develops slowly. And the industry largely knows how these technologies work, and they come up with all these ANSI codes for bases and ballast sizes and all this kind of stuff. And then the products go to the market. It's almost like it happened the other way around with LED, where everyone just started making light fixtures and throwing them up everywhere, and people were scrambling, and the DLC comes along, and the DOE's got a program, and it's like, how much time do you guys spend retroactively looking at mistakes that were made? Do you ask, like, do you remember this mistake that we made with uh, outdoor luminaires, and they created all this light pollution? How are we going to avoid that in the future? Or remember when we reintroduced the flicker issue? We had it beat back in 2000. And now we reintroduced it because we were just so desperately chasing this lumens per watt thing that we forgot about all the stuff we knew. And that's why it's very important to study the history of lighting, which is why the LCL, there's not enough questions about LED. No, maybe there's not enough about what we know about lighting, actually, you know, prior to LED. Um, and maybe everyone needs to remember all those learnings and bring them forward. I mean, when UVC technology for this disinfection stuff, that's from the 70s. Like, they knew how to do that for tuberculosis labs, which is works the same way as COVID in 1975 or something like that. They knew how that worked and just, it just stalled out or whatever. So I, I think that any study, and I'm just talking here, any study is the study of history. If you're studying physics, you're studying the history of physics. You're studying the history of math, mathematics. That's all it is. Every, everything you're studying is history. I think it's very important, but do you guys discuss in your LC exams or, or do you, you expect industry people to know some of these mistakes or do we need a course on here are the errors of the lighting LED lighting boom? Within the LC exam, no, <laughs> we're not, go we're not going after um, what happened in 2010 that um, stalled LEDs for an extra year, right? It's, it's more, um, do you understand all of the lighting technologies, all, you know, the control systems, how uh, the communication protocols that are required for, uh, for lighting today? So no, in, in the LC environment, it's, and, and it's really interesting to look at it that way, as like, do you understand the mistakes that were made before you came along? Um, uh, and, and, and no, I think there, there are opportunities to do that, but, um, the LC exam does not focus on those in, in that way. No, it's, do you understand, you know, if you were to, um, if you were to approach a project and you found these technologies on the site, what would be appropriate? you as the lighting practitioner, what would be appropriate to do next? What would be appropriate to move forward with? Um, maybe within that, there are ways without calling them mistakes, but you're inheriting a high pressure sodium street lighting system. 
you've been what's asked good about to upgrade it. it. I think I think like I think what never happened was asked what's good about it. You know, I mean, why did they choose HPS? You know, long life, high lumens per watt, low Kelvin. Maybe they chose it for low Kelvin temperature. Does anyone even know that? Or was it just, you know, was it just because HPS had good lumens per watt? Who knows? Um, right. we, you know, but these things would be interesting to know. Like, why was this technology developed? What was the purpose of it? But before we get go too bad on that, I want to go back to the LC here. Um, all the top dogs in lighting, except for one podcast host is an LC that I know. Um, but uh, that... That seems to be waning slightly. There seems to be that of all the institutions that kind of recovered from the LED sort of, you know, craziness that started happening around 2010 and kind of got rid of the three big players in the industry and all that. Um, the LC was the, was the gold standard. And it's kind of, it still is, but it's kind of been overshadowed or underlooked. How it, why is that, and how does that is it gonna is it gonna surge back? Do you feel like the LC is gonna make a comeback? I think there's every opportunity for it to make a comeback. Um, and I know you asked uh, Frank Agraz a similar question in his, um, and I anticipate my answer will be similar. Um, I, I think there are lots of different influences out in the marketplace today. Um, you have um, just as you have, I don't want to say competing metrics, but lots of different ways of of um categorizing um the performance of a light fixture um i think there have uh, in the same time frame there are lots of um competing i don't want to say competing but there are lots of different opportunities to get letters after your name and it can be um confusing and you actually when you read about them they all bring a certain level of value to the marketplace i think or many of them do um but they bring different values to the marketplace i think and none of them um approaches lighting knowledge a foundational level of lighting knowledge the way the lc does and i think that's what sets the lc apart from Every, in my opinion, every other certification out there related to lighting. You know, LEED AP has lighting credits. So there is lighting in LEED, right? And I have, I am a, I'm a LEED accredited professional because of the value that those letters behind my name brings to me in the marketplace. I am an LC because of the value that it brings to me in the marketplace. There are certain, I think, uh, people who interact with the market, maybe they don't understand or they they've never been told about or recommended to investigate the lc and i think there there are opportunities for the ncqlp board and council to really do an outreach now as we come out of the pandemic here are all the reasons why an lc why you want an lc on your project hmm. How, so i did my lc in 2010 i believe when did you do your stand just out of curiosity um, I did mine in 2007. So okay. um, when I joined ICF in 2007, they were the first employer who who recommended to me. Uh, actually, it wasn't a recommendation. The contract that I was working on was for the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, aka NYSERDA. At that time, I was on a team implementing the commercial lighting program, which was a very... Um, very innovative lighting program at the time. But one of the things in our contract with NYSERDA was that all account managers that are calling on lighting practitioners shall have their LC. 
So ICF hired me and they basically said, thou shalt take and pass your LC. <laughs> but I had been in the industry already for 12 years at that point. And yeah. my previous employers, for whatever reason, whether they didn't see the value or they had enough LCs on their roles already that they didn't feel the need for me to have mine. Um, and so I took my LC exam. Um, then I got, and that really started my involvement in my local IES section, uh, ultimately leading the IES National LC Study Group or co-leading it. And then I joined the committee. Were there monetary so really benefits? So taking the LC exam. What's that? Were there, were there monet, like, so you, you talked a lot, a lot of prestige and social and your job required it and all that, but does the LC command a higher value to your salary or should it? Um, there were times when, when my employer couldn't, if I didn't have my LC, I, I, I couldn't be involved with a project, which meant potentially that there wouldn't be enough employment for me. Um, so there was never in, in, in my employee employer, um, um, in that role, there was no, you got your LC, here's a bonus, or here's how much your, um, your, um, your salary is going to increase. Um, it wasn't structured like that for me. I believe other, um, other people in the industry, I think when you have your LC, you bring a greater, um, level of understanding and a, a greater value to a project or to their employer. So I, I had one experience. It wouldn't surprise me that there are others that um, who realized a benefit monetarily. Well, any final thoughts about the NCQLP or any, we got to have you on again because I feel like we could just, I have like a ton of questions that I could open up a whole other bunch of directions here. And I don't want to do that because <laughs> be we're trying to keep them 45 minutes or so. Um, sure. Can you, can you give any final reasons for the listeners out there why they should investigate the LC and 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 get involved and get their LCs? Um, for me, um, lighting certification means, or uh, the person who passes the LC exam has one invested 150 to 200 hours learning about lighting, right outside of their daily job. So you have a lighting practitioner that has been working in the industry for at least three years. They have then said that whether it's through their employer or through their own initiative, I want to get the LC. Um, and, and that, you know, being successful on that exam takes work because no employer is going through any one job that you do in the industry. You're never going to get exposed to everything that you need, in my opinion, to be successful on the exam. You're gonna to have to study and work. And that knowledge that you then on your own invest in yourself um, means something when you get those two letters after your name. How do they register, um, for, the, how do they register for the exam? So ncqlp.org um, will give you all of the information about the exam. Um, there is information uh, for those who have not taken the exam yet and are interested in the exam. Um, it's offered once per year in the fall, in November. So there will be a whole section on the website. Um, they can read through the candidate handbook. It gives all of the um, all of the information about what's required of you to be eligible to sit for the exam. Um, and then all of the information about how to take the exam. Starting last year, it's now an online exam. 
So uh, previously it was a paper exam. And so uh, candidates would have to go to certain cities, uh, sometimes having to drive and travel. Now that we're an online exam, it's much more accessible for people throughout the country to, uh, to have closer access to an online testing center to do that. So all of that is on the ncqlp.org website. Um, and obviously, uh, if anyone has any questions and they reach out through you, um, please pass on those questions to me. I know you have my contact information. So I'm sure. um, happy to address those questions. For those LCs out there who are listening to this, who, who, who are like me, I, I'm really interested in how the exam's put together and I'd be really interested in learning more. Please reach out to us, let us know. There are opportunities to become what we call item writers, to, 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 to be trained on how to write exam questions, then to actually start writing questions. And then as we grow that group, there are opportunities to work uh, to, to join the committee um, itself. So I'm happy to entertain any questions that they have. Obviously, I can't answer questions about what questions are on the exam, but those who have more questions about taking the exam or learning more about becoming an item writer and getting involved in the future of the LC exam, please contact you and then, you know, please forward those on to me. Yeah, folks. Um, so go to ncqlp.org. And Greg, um, thanks to, you know, what a great organization. Um, if you're listening to this, so many things in lighting, Greg, are volunteer driven. I mean, you wouldn't believe how much stuff gets done. I, I was, when I went to the IAS conference 2019, I was blown away that so many of those great committees and so much of the work is done by people volunteering their time. So yeah, get involved. Get involved in your local IES chapter. Find out what you need to know, and then move forward. and 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 you, you, the the gold standard is the LC. So go to ncqlp.org. That's right. And Greg, what about the gangsters, bud? Down at Satco Lighting, satco.com, s-a-t-c-o.com. That's right. They're starfish connection, security, atmosphere, convenience, and wellness is what it offers. And an atmosphere, man. More than anything, lighting can do all this other stuff. But sometimes you want the right atmosphere, and they can do it there. Millions of colors available through Starfish. Check it out. Got to go satco.com. Of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Get associated, get educated. Everything in NAILS training programs leads to the LC. That's what it was built for. So you can take LS1 and then you take LS2. You get involved in LS Evolve and you'll be super ready for that LC test. So go to naild.org. That's right, nailed.org. For right now, we thank Daniel Rogers, Greg Eric, myself, and all you listeners out there, I speak on behalf of everybody here. Thank you for listening. Bye for now.